So in this section, we wanted to explore some of the areas of challenge or tension that, as we reflected on the document, we, we found ourselves noticing as a team. Uh, given your experience, Father James, leading parishes on that journey of renewal and working at Diocesan Neville, what were some of the challenges that struck you most as you read through the instruction? I think one of the things that struck me, I've already kind of commented on it, that in the one hand, it's easy to to read this, you know, this protective sense, because a lot of the document obviously has been it's been written by the congregation of the clergy. They they seek to uh, protect the uniqueness of the ordained role. You know, this wasn't issued by you know the Department on New Evangelization. Is that in some places it comes across as a bit fearful and controlling. I, I think if if we reduce it that that's the only motive, then then as I said before, I think we miss something. Uh, because this is really about authenticity, you know, be you know, living the mission out of the authenticity of our of our of our vocation. But in places where it seems to overstate the point about you know, don't use this title or don't use this or lay people shouldn't be called this, this, and this, and you know, I, I've discovered that titles and words don't—they're not the deal breakers. It's it's the meaning that we give these things. And so, as long as you've, you, I think you've got a clear enunciation of the of the principles involved. I, I just think the, the the tone of 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 being overly uh, prescriptive on on this and that it just it comes it comes across poorly. I think, um, you know, for people of hope, and and then why are we so fearful about about this? So that would be one potential weakness of the document. I think that. Many people who have got some theological background can can see past that. They can see what the real issues are. But I think for a lot of people who are interested in this issue, reading through that section is a major turnoff. It's like you know, good grief, boys! Like, come on. Uh, so that I would say that that's that's a potential problem. Um, another thing is, uh, oh, we spoke about it and and we agreed to use the term that the document is a bit. Overly optimistic about our starting point, and 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 that's a very positive way way to say it. But a few places I found myself shaking my head, like you know, and maybe it's just my perspective. But in many of the dioceses I've been to and looking at their numbers, and and this is in North America, let alone in Europe, the structure is going off the cliff. Like it, you know, if if you think about like it's it's going off the cliff. It's in the it's in the the beginning of the end of, of the collapse of the structure. Now, I'm not saying it's the be, it's the end of the of the diocese itself and the, those places or the or the diocesan churches. Something new is going to emerge, but but it's it's reached critical. There's a critical point that we're in, and that critical urge that urgency doesn't necessarily come across. It's a fairly lackadaisical sense of, well, you know, we've got to deal with these issues and here's some guidelines. And But in some places, this is an incredibly pressing issue. And if if we don't get it right, I think there are major consequences if we don't get this right. We're very vulnerable right, right now. Um, and there's the mystery of God's grace in all of this. There's the Paschal mystery of dying and rising. But I sometimes think, I'm not sure that every act of dying in the church is, is necessarily God's will. I was struck as well that in, in um, paragraph 48, it, it speaks about how, you know, some of these challenges are, are presumably reversible and of brief duration. And one of the things that that made me sort of muse on was, you know, God is, God is always doing a new thing. 
And some of what we see here in, in what has gone stripping away from the church with this pandemic, what is he calling his church to be? Uh, that should give us pause. That should cause us to say, even if in the immediate term, we see people, you know, rising up in parishes to that challenge of, of sharing the gospel, going out and sharing the faith and, and God willing, many people coming to know Christ so that the numeric challenges are reversible. It does not mean that the previous structures are supportive of mission and are set up in a way to foster mission. And so we we can't just assume that even a return to health and growth is best served by a continuation with the existing structures. It's back to that call to assess from a point of view that is passionate about mission, clear about the Lord's call to make disciples and willing to put all at the service of that. I, I, I would say that these, the, what they say, the scarcity of clergy and the and the demographic decline, they say, are presumably reversible. I would say, possibly reversible. Mm. Uh, I would not, in any way, say it's it's presumable. Um, not from what I've seen in the church. Do do I believe that the church can can be healthy? I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't believe that. So, and when I say possibly, uh, that has everything to do with us, not not with the Lord. There's nothing deficient there. I mean, God's will for the church is to be healthy and to bear fruit. Is the will of my Father that you bear become my di disciples and bear much fruit. That That is clear, and the Lord gives us the grace we need for that. But if we make idols of our structures and our ways of doing things, the very things that Evangelii Nunciandi 27 is asking us to give up, then then we our fruit will not be as great. And there are shifts. Again, this is written for the global church in places in Europe and in North America. The demographic issue is not just about church itself there's there's demographic issues afflicting uh nations at, at provincial regional and federal levels and national levels where you've got uh you know the bottoming out of population the the the, the you know the birth rate is below the replacement level the the, the baby boomers now are, represent the majority of the population like entire populations are are, are going through a, a a dying process and so that I don't. That may be reversible in some distant future, but it ain't anytime soon. And so I think, in terms of of possible weaknesses, I think this is extremely, extremely understated. Um, that also talks about the the financial state of the diocese and and leads into the whole issue of you know closure of of, of churches, suppression of parishes, and goes into a lot of canonical terms. Which after my three years working with the diocese, I'm fairly familiar with this stuff. I've, ne I've never, you know, I, I'm not by nature perhaps inclined towards canon law, but maybe out of, ne out of necessity, uh, I've come to really, really appreciate it. But there's a distinction here that's, that's, that's very helpful, but m might be lost in a lot of people. And again, this is, this is sometimes if you're a specialist in your area, you, you, we can all do it. We presume a lot, but there's a very, uh, slight distinction here that needs to be made. It says that lack of clergy, demographic decline, or the grave financial state of a diocese are not ordinarily legitimate causes for decreeing a reduction of parishes. Now, here's the thing. Parishes or the dioceses all over the Western world, and, uh, and I include uh, Australia and those regions are dealing with this issue of decreeing a reduction of parishes precisely because of lack of clergy, demographic decline, and grave financial state. But it says here, state of the diocese. Uh, 
not the state of a parish. And that's, that's a different thing. See, canon law is very protective of parishes and distinguishes in church law uh, between, a, between a diocese and a parish. And in canon law, a parish is actually what's called a juridical person, fancy okay. term, which basically mean, means the bishop can't grab the stuff. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so in some dioceses, like our own here, legally, our legal entity is, is what's called the corporation. So, so basically the bishop owns all the stuff. He does. It, at a parish, the chair you're sitting on, the bishop owns it, at least if you're structured legally or civilly as we are. But in canon law, he can't. It's not his chair. <laughs> you can't take it. So church law protects it. And possibly that's some of the wisdom after being around for 2,000 years is that a bishop cannot suppress a parish and sell off its stuff to basically pay the diocesan bills. You can't do that. So this is what this document is saying. But people could misconstrue this as somehow saying, oh, well, see, the fact that we've got no money in the bank at the parish and are up to our eyeballs in debt and, and, and don't have the resources to even maintain the building, let alone do mission, that's a, you can't close our parish for that reason. No, the, the, it's a, a very good reason if a parish is not able to to take care of itself is, is a legitimate reason, but not at the diocesan level. So I would say that that's another po possible weakness that that line, I could see that line causing a lot of chanceries, a lot of headaches as, mm -hmm. as very passionate, well-meaning people who want to keep their building would, would quote this and maybe not see that distinction. That's really helpful. I know we were also struck by, uh, as we reflected in the document together, that there's a whole section around you know different ways of of uh, bringing together groups of priests to serve, and, and this idea of a, a primus inter paris model. Say some more about that. Well, yeah, you, you, leadership by committee doesn't work, especially in times of crisis, in times of, of where you need radical shift. You know, parish renewal is hard work, mm -hmm. and it takes time, and it takes energy, it takes focus. You need to build a team where everyone's on board. That takes time. Uh, and, you know, there are many soft things that a uh, primus inter pares. Now, primus inter pares is Latin for primus is, is first, primary, inter, among, and pares equals. So first among equals. So basically, we're all equal, but you're kind of, you know, all animals are equal. Some, but some are more equal than others. Uh, so you're kind of the boss, but not really the boss. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a gentle form of, of, of leadership where you could mildly suggest things, but and I you, think, try to, you try to force that through, you're, you're going to get pushed back. And I, I think that for me was, was the key thing when I looked at it. And, you know, we, we work with parishes and dioceses around the world dealing with this kind of change. And that sort of primus into Paris approach, has it, it has its place. It can be useful, particularly in a steady state environment or where it's incremental organic change over time. What it is far less helpful for is times when you need what the document calls for, a pastoral conversion. Uh, we all know in our own lives that the journey of conversion is not always an easy one. Uh, and, and in this case, in, in these times, it's a radical transformation that's often been asked of because we're, we're so far back from what the document calls us to. And that kind of change needs clear leadership, because only clear leadership gets us out of lowest common denominator consensus by committee answers, which will never bring about the, the shifts that and are required. Trying to see transformation in a parish is, is difficult enough when you have a clear leader and a clear yeah. pastor. And let's be honest, like yet yeah, there is value in the primus mm. interpret parish because uh, leadership ideally should not be command and control. Now, mm. there are moments of extreme crisis where 
command and control is very, very appropriate for short periods yeah. well, of time. Well, the house is burning. Get out. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Don't consult about the gap, but you know, <laughs> Listen, the, the we order. We don't need to form a committee <laughs> and have elections for a committee to figure out we need to get out of the house. But generally, we want to be very collaborative mm-hmm. and supportive, and, and, and that's the most long-term chance of, of leadership being fruitful with that kind of model. But one of the things that, that leaders cannot give up is is the vision, the idea of, vi- of casting vision, of reminding people of the why and driving that home in everything you do in your preaching. And even when there is clear leadership, many pastors that we work with will find that, you know, you can have uh, parish staff, even other clergy on your team. You can have key um, parishioners who they don't disagree about what you're doing or how you're going about reaching your our goal. They disagree with the goal. Like this idea that, you know, parishes' mission should be the, the interpretive key of everything and it's primarily about evangelization being primary. There's a lot of Catholics who say, no, no way. That's, that's It's not, just holiness, nothing else. That, or, or not even that. It's like maybe, it, like that's not my idea of what a parish is. Just my, my idea of parishes is um, a minimalistic place where I go to get communion so I can go to heaven when I die. Mm-hmm. And, and don't ask anything else of me. And... Father, the, the thing you're talking about, that's not Catholic. Mm. That sounds like some something from some other church. And you'll run into this stuff. So that's when there's clear leadership. When you don't have clear leadership uh, and you're left to make mild suggestions, generally my experience of this is, is as follows. This is often what would happen at, say, meetings that were called de- deanery meetings in the past. And generally everyone's polite. It's great to get together. Uh, we share ideas. A mild suggestion is made and people are fairly polite. They're not going to say, I don't like your idea or whatever. And the end of the meeting, everyone goes home and does nothing. Nothing happens. And it's and it's, it can end in a lot of frustration. And because in the end, when a pastor goes back to his parish, he he's the only one, it's only to the bishop that he's answerable. Mm. Thank you. I think it, you know, it's been really helpful just to explore some of the some of the areas of silence, some of the areas of tension in the document. Uh, in the next section, what we're going to do is look at drawing on all that's great in it. Can I say something about it? the suggestion that priests live with their mothers? If you must. I know my, my own mother would probably, she'd be very <laughs> upset about that. would have nothing, to do, have nothing to do with it. Your yeah. mother is a wise woman and I laud and support her <laughs> discernment. Uh, I, that will move on. <laughs>